Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 576 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Wednesday, December 22nd, 2010. It means Christmas will be, well, Christmas is going to be on Saturday. And uh, tomorrow... Tomorrow we're going to do our special Christmas edition of the Survival Podcast, The Survivalist View of Christmas. It'll be warm and fuzzy and make you feel good and put you in the right mood to go through the, 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 uh, the you know, uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and the weekend with just great, good feeling things. But today I'm not going to put you in a great mood. Yesterday I wrote an article called Seven Deadly Cracks in the False Recovery. And uh, put that on a trtam.com and it's pretty gloomy. And it's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the seven deadly cracks, the false recovery that I've been forecasting for two years, why I believe we're at the beginning of it, what it means, and how bad it's really going to get. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to do this show today. We're too close to the holidays, but I'm taking next week off. And it's in my head, and I can't get it out, and you guys need to hear about this. And it's actually not as bad as it sounds. It is, but in some ways it isn't, and I will give you solutions, and I will give you reasons to be optimistic, and I will tell you this. What you hear today may trouble you. Don't be troubled through your holidays. Enjoy them. Don't be troubled through your New Year's celebration. Enjoy it. There's time to work on this stuff. Sometimes in, sometime in 2011, though, you're going to have to make some tough decisions. And I want to arm you now, and I want to get you thinking now, so I'm going to do this even though my gut tells me not to. More on that in a bit. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Emergency Essentials. Um, what I'm going to tell you today is going to is really going to you know bother you about some of the things with our economy and, and our future. And one of the things we're going to have to worry about is feeding ourselves. Well, one of the best ways we can make sure that we can feed ourselves is to have a large supply of food stored at home. And we can only get so far with the eat what you store, store what you eat. When we start wanting to branch out past about three months, we need to start bringing in some long-term storables. Emergency Essentials is just one of our great sponsors that can help you do that with foods by Yoder's, Mountain House, uh, Providing Pantry, and many others. Great long-term storable foods, great pricing, great customer service. Check out Emergency Essentials. And if you're not getting their catalog, go to their website, request their catalog. I'm telling you right now, it's a great resource to have around. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. As much as I hate to say it, when times are tough, crime goes up, dangers go up, and we need to be well-armed. And we need to be well-armed in our persons and in our homes. But a gun without an am- without ammunition is nothing but a fancy, expensive club. And you can get clubs a lot cheaper. So if you're going to rely on a club, get yourself a saw and go cut yourself a big branch out of a tree. If you're going to rely on a gun, make sure that you are well stocked with ammo. I don't know a better place to do that than at BulkAmmo.com with some of the best deals on ammunition available online today. 
Next up, I want to remind you, connect with us, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, all of that good stuff. I uh, talked about it yesterday, but there is going to be so much YouTube stuff coming next year. Get subscribed to our channel now. That helps us out a lot, too, when we're looking for products to review for you guys. If I can get the YouTube channel up to where we have like 10,000 subscribers, I can get just about anything you guys want to see reviewed. Right now, even though it's a, you know, the show's popular and all, with the YouTube numbers I have, I still have to buy most of the stuff that I review. So if you guys can help me out by just subscribing and checking out my videos, that would help a lot. Facebook and Twitter, I put a lot of information out there that I just don't have room for on the show. So it's a great way to stay in touch with me and get a little bit more personal interaction. And make sure you check out our forum. I said this before, I'll say it again. There's a PhD in preparedness waiting for you at the forum, and it's all absolutely free. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get about 20 videos available nowhere else. You get $100 worth of free ebooks. You get discounts from about 25 different vendors. And it all costs, what, $50 a year? Or right now, until midnight on Christmas, Central Standard Time, first year is $30 with the discount code CHRISTMAS, all lowercase. I know to capitalize CHRISTMAS, but guess what? The discount codes work better if you do all lowercase. So, with that, let's go ahead and get into the, the, the uh, main topic of today. Show try to get through that quick for you. Always try to get through the housekeeping sections as quick as I can. Um, what spawned this article and what's spawning now, you know, the even more in depth look at this with today's episode is I've been paying attention more so lately than I have in the past to things like CNN Money and Fox News and other major media outlets to see what the sheep are being told about the economy, about the recovery, about jobs numbers, about all types of things like that. And then yesterday I went and I, I looked at the stock market numbers and it was up at like 11,525 or something like that when I looked yesterday. And, you know, there were all these rosy glowing reports out about be deals being made uh, by the banks. As I look at the Dow Jones Industrials right now, 9.47 a.m. Central, so it's about 10.45 up in New York where Wall Street is, uh, up five points on the day. Not big, but considering we had a decent day yesterday, a decent day the day before, uh, you know, it's, it's continuing to go up. Could end up down for the day, who knows, but things are looking good on Wall Street, 11,538. And remember, I had Mike Gazer on the show uh, several months ago. And I said, Mike, what about my prediction of a false recovery? He said, no, nope, not happening. And Mike Gazer's a smart guy. Really tuned in, really honed in on the market. We've had the high since the recovery. I hope you got out then. You're not getting another opportunity. And I said, okay, I don't agree, but tell me why. And he did. And I questioned myself for a while. And then I came back to you guys a couple episodes later and said, no, this false recovery is coming. Here's why. And now we see it continuing to rebound. So I was thinking about the fact that now guys like Gerald Salente and Peter Schiff are all hedging their bets and saying, but that's not what I really meant. Yeah, this thing's still going up and not quite where I said it would, but it's still going to come down the other side, which I think they're right. But these guys basically told us, hey, this thing was going off in the abyss and that this crash was the final crash, you know, the big one. And, and all of these idiots on talking heads on mainstream media before the crash said, ah, you know, if you don't need your money for the next five or ten years, don't worry about it. We're not really in that bad of shape. There's going to be some correction here and there. There always is. There's no way to predict the market. But there's nothing really to worry about. And then people had their retirement savings cut in half overnight. Well, now we have all of the rah-rah crap going again on TV. 
I, I don't know who the guy was, but I heard one guy on Fox News, you know, so unnotable that I don't remember his name and had never heard of him before. But they said, you know, what about, you know, all this Christmas spending? Does that show, you know, and is it real, is it real spending or, you know, is there really profitable spending? All these stores are cutting discounts. And he said, look, the thing that, you know, how much money the stores makes, Wall Street will sort that out a few months from now. Meaning, I'm punting. I'm not going to answer that question. Um, but there's a lot of people shopping. And there's a lot of people spending. We're seeing spending going up in a lot of different areas. And what we see here is that the economy has actually turned a corner now. And the people that didn't lose their jobs have realized that they're going to be okay. And they're now spending and borrowing and going on. And this is real momentum poured into the economy going forward. And 2011 is going to be a pretty good year. I don't think he's really that wrong. But it scares the hell out of me that he just told the American people that. Because you know what he's not telling the American people? The other side. Because he doesn't have any idea what it is. In some ways, he's right. And there's a lot of reasons right now being given for this improving economy. One is that the Republicans got elected in large numbers, especially in the House. And we're going to get some monetary sanity back into to, to Washington, D.C., Folks, call me a cynic, but I'll believe monetary sanity in Washington when I see it. Do I think that the Republicans will cut some things? Yeah. I think they'll bang pots and pans and cymbals and drums and say, look, we cut $18 billion of pork out of this spending bill, and they're still going to pass a trillion-dollar spending bill. You know, that's not meaningful cuts. Cutting pork doesn't really do anything. I mean, one thing I don't think most people understand is all that pork, all these earmarks, as they call them, that money's already spent. If it doesn't go to Joe Blow's earmark, it goes to, to, to you know Joe Bob's earmark. Earmarks are part of the overall approved budget. We have to actually attack the budget itself, that number. And most of the spending today is on interest on the debt, new borrowing on the debt, and, and entitlement programs that no one's going to cut because they're all scared of the, the political consequences. Entitlements make up the majority of our spending in government today. We've put ourselves into a position where the money that we're spending today actually was spent 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Folks, don't you understand that's how debt works? We're, we're making good on the, on, on the credit card purchases from 2000. And there's nothing we can do to avoid that. So the Republicans getting elected doesn't really give me a warm fuzzy, at least for spending. Then there's the compromise on the tax cut. So that's another thing we're being told. Well, you know, rich people won't get a huge tax increase and yada bull crap and all this other BS, you know. And now they feel more confident in the economy and going forward. I told you that the ultra-rich, the uber-rich, don't care if their taxes go up anyway. They're not going to pay them. Once you get to a certain level of income, avoiding taxation becomes remarkably easy. There's so many ways to get your money out of the tax system once you're worth, you know, half a billion dollars or more, it's unbelievable. It does help the middle of the road wealthy. The the guy that's just like you, but just lives a few neighborhoods over that's a little better off. The guy that maybe has a net worth of two or three million dollars that he's worked his ass off for and built a business over twenty years, and maybe he's drawn a salary of three hundred thousand dollars a year out of his business, that guy. Uh, the guy that probably employs 50 to 70 people so he can make $300,000 or $400,000 a year or maybe even more. I mean, whatever he wants to make, it's his business. It helps him a little bit, and maybe he'll lay one or two people less off, but 
this tax cuts really don't fix the economy. The next one is that people are spending more money, that this is the real reason. And people are right about this one. But you got to think about what you're saying here. The drunks feel better because they're boozing again. You know, they were all hung over, laying in the streets. They were out of booze. They tried, they quit cold turkey. They had headaches. They had the shakes. They were detoxing. Somebody went around and handed out Jack Daniels, and now they're all happy and partying again. Well, what's going to happen when the bottles go empty this time? The hangover is going to be worse. So, yeah, the consumer spending is spurring the economy, but it is unsustainable. The next one is that, you know, banks are making deals with each other. There's bank mergers going on. They're starting to realize that they're flush with cash. They're having to open up capital. They're looking for places to loan their money to and, and other nonsense like that. And there's a little bit of truth to that. The banks are sitting on lots of cash. They, they are, you know, most of what they're doing with their cash reserves is they're buying treasury bonds for, you know, four or five points. They're borrowing the money for half a point. They're making the spread. Mike Gazer was dead on about that when I brought him on. But, at some point, they have to start looking at all these cash reserves and shareholders in the bank start going, guys, you got to do better than 3% on our money. You know, we can go we can go buy a CD from your competitors in Hong Kong and get 3% on our money. Where, where's the returns? Why, why aren't you guys doing this fiat thing and creating money with fractional reserve anymore? And they go, we don't have anybody to loan the money to. And the shareholders start saying, find somebody to loan the money to. You need to start creating money again. So they are doing that on some degree, and that starts to push money into the economy, and that helps to spur the economy. And then, here's the big one. If you didn't lose your job yet, if you're among the 80% of people that still have their job, that were employed before and are still employed after, and if if you were employed in a decent, good job and had some, some level of, of reasonable income, about 80% of the people... 80% of the people that met that category are still employed. That means 20% lost their jobs before you think that 80% sounds like a good number. But about 80% are still... And here's what's happening to that 80%. Not me. I'm not getting cancer. Bob got cancer. Tom got cancer. Joe got cancer. They they laid off everybody at the plant. I kept my job. Companies making more money than any time in history, and that's true, by the way, folks. The companies that are still alive, I'll, I'll talk about that more in a second, making more money than any time in history. And, and, and Billy, who kept his job, is starting to go, you know what, we knuckled down for two years because we were afraid this was going to happen to us. We paid off the MasterCard bill, they're 4500 bucks, and we don't owe any money on MasterCard anymore. And we started putting some money away in case I lost my job or the missus lost her job. And we've got a few thousand dollars in savings, just plain savings, and we've got maybe a little bit of other money squirreled away, and our 401k's come back about, you know, most of what it's lost, it feels like, even though it's probably only 40% of what they lost, because he was still contributing the whole time. So in his mind, his 401k dropped from 100 to 50, and now he feels like it's back up to 80 or 85 and on its way up, so everything must be okay, his money's back. But he doesn't think about the fact that for two years he contributed every month. And that a big part of that rebound is his own investment. So his everything's starting to feel good for him. And it's Christmas time, and hell, you know what? The kids had to do without some things. Maybe I cut out an activity or two. But here we go through the holidays again. Everything looks good. I didn't lose my job. Let's go out and enjoy it. Let's. I mean, we, I can't die with it. And there's, there's, a, there's a place for that attitude. But as a mass delusion, it's very dangerous. 
And these are the things driving the recovery, and the real thing driving the recovery is nothing but a public relations campaign that's being being, being conducted very aggressively by Washington, D.C. and Wall Street, working together while calling each other the enemy the entire time. Wall Street saying, you're over-regulating us, you're trying to put us down, you know, but hey, we are strong as a nation, our businesses are restructuring, we're making money, look, hey, we paid back the money you gave us, what more do you want from us? We all know that was a scam, right? They took the money for zero interest, they created new money in the banking system out of nothing, they gave it back. If you give me a few billion dollars, I'll give it back to you next year. I'll take that deal any day, okay, folks? Anybody that thinks it's amazing that a company that's in deep crap can be given $20 billion dollars even, and some of these are given $80, like AIG, tax-free, interest-free, for two years, and, and then fix their problems and give the money back, anybody that thinks that's a big deal, you don't understand money at all. How would you like it if I gave you a billion dollars in a bank account for a day? You should go do the math and see, even with a 1% interest rate, what 1% of a billion dollars is. Even if you divide that by 365. What would you make in one day's interest on a billion dollars from your local bank? Now, if I give you $20 billion dollars and you can do creative things with it, and you don't have to pay any interest on it. What if I give you a billion dollars and you're allowed to buy and hold U.S. Treasury bonds for two years paying you 4% interest? But then you have to give me the money back. All right? There's a lot of voodoo there. That's all I'm trying to say so that we understand that. So Wall Street's been given that message. And Washington's like, we need to take control for the people. We need to prevent these abuses. We need to pass this financial reform. And when they pass financial reform, and they leave the biggest offenders out as exempt. All the big banks exempt from financial reform. All the big banks. Every single one of them. Freddie, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae. Exempt from the financial reform bill. AIG, exempt. Goldman Sachs, exempt. But, but see, they told us they were helping us. By, by squashing little banks like my bank, like Frost Bank. And saying, go, don't go abuse your customers. And for the guy, you know, Mr. Frost, literally, the, the, the grandson of the founder of the bank, who still runs the bank, goes, I got 18 branches. I can't afford to abuse anybody. They'll leave me. I'm taking care of my customers because I have to. You know, this is the type of thing that's been going on. And it's worked. It's worked for all the reasons I've given you. And that's why the economy is, to, you know, to quote the cloud on Fox News, turning a corner. The problem is that the American people believe it to be so. They believe that the economy has really turned a corner. And they do this because in some ways it has. Um... Let me tell you really kind of what's gone on, what's really happened over the past two and a half, three years. Companies that didn't go broke said, we have to get through this period. And they got very, very serious, and they brought together all the suits and ties. And think whatever you want about people that run corporate businesses in America today, but especially the mid-sized businesses. And even the giant ones, the megacorps, everything in between from... Joe Blow's, you know, emporium down the road that has a uh, hundred employees to, you know, a, a multi-thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand global corp. The people that run those companies know what they're doing because if they don't, they go out of business. And the smaller they are, the quicker that's the case. 
So all of these companies, from mom and pop shops up to megacorps, got together at the beginning of this thing. When the TV was still telling you, don't worry, it'll be okay, um, they had their ear to their, the ground, they were talking to their customers, they were talking to their suppliers, they were cutting forecasts left and right, and they knew it was coming, and no TV could lie to them. So they said, survival plan. That's what you do when you run a business and this is coming. You go to a survival plan. First thing they said is we have to cut costs everywhere we can. So maybe we, if we don't want to lay anybody off, everybody's taking a 15% pay cut or a 20% pay cut. We're doing that now. And, and, we'll, and that's now and that's it's just happening. How many people out there did that happen to? You know, and hey, don't hate your, your employer. He might have saved your job by taking 15% out of it. He might, they, companies made moves like everybody's going to salary and if we have to work overtime, there's no overtime. They did whatever they had to because they knew that they had to make the numbers justify. Because if, if you don't make the numbers justify, everybody goes and nobody gets food on their table. And then the next thing is, can we cut our supply costs? So they got the supply person in and they went to everybody that they buy from and said, hey, you guys know what's coming to, um, we're going out for new bids, open bids, or you know, instead of new bids, just give us a better price, give us a discount. Come on, five points. Five points off of you, and I can let you go, and we can just keep doing business as usual. I don't have to go take bids. And because the suppliers were doing the same thing the companies were, in many cases, they were getting on both ends, right? The company itself was being told this by the people it supplied, and it was doing it to its suppliers. And everybody capitulated, and they, they leaned out costs anywhere they could. And then the supplier said, how do I make up for this five points? And he just didn't give it away. They, they improved their efficiencies, and they, they cut their salaries, and they did whatever they had to do. That's deflation. That's what kept a check on inflation during this whole period, that process. Now, on the other end of this, the, the other thing these companies started doing when they realized, hey, we're going to need more than just to get by. We're going to need cash reserves. This is going to be a really nasty, nasty couple of years. Well, the next thing they did is they went to all the managers and department heads and said, let's start cutting headcount. Let's start laying people off. Anybody that's not critical to the business um, is on the list, and out of that list, cut the bottom 50. The, the 50% of the non-critical employees cut, and that was quick. And then over time, they weeded off that list, and then they got rid of all the non-critical employees. And then they even started, at some point, to look at the, the worst-case scenarios, and they started to get rid of critical employees. People they really needed, but they could get by without. And at that point, they started throttling the business. If business dropped even a little bit, where we didn't need a guy for a month, lay him off. We can always call him back. If the business came back, they called the one guy back, not everybody back. And they, and they kept weaning it down and weaning it down. And then what we end up with is a bunch of companies in America, again, from mom and pops to megacorps, that are finally running at peak efficiency, or at least as close as they can get to it. And at the same time, since they've leaned out the cost, any rebound in business starts to put cash in the coffers. And they start to build up cash reserves. And right now, the biggest banks and the biggest companies in the world are flush with cash and making higher profits than any time in their history. That is a fact. Now, this sounds good, and it could be good. It really could. But it's not. If we were in a true capitalist republic, this would be wonderful. Because as these companies go through these growth cycles, eventually they're going to start spending money. As they start to spend money, they start to look for places to expand. Their suppliers, do, and we go through a cycle of recovery. That's where we should be right now. In fact, we should be into that cycle at this point, because it doesn't take two and a half years for this process to flush itself out. It should take about 11 to 16 months. 
but it's taken this long because of interference. While this was going on, your government has been pissing money away in the form of debt and debt-based spending through stimulus package and, and all these different things to pump money into the economy. I'm not even talking about TARP. I'm not even talking about the auto bailouts. I'm not even talking about saving Freddie and Fannie. You can make a case for all of that. I'm talking about the direct capital infusions into the economy. I'm talking about a $780 billion stimulus that's really a trillion dollars in stimulus when you get to the end of it. I'm talking about four to five trillion dollars that the Fed pushed into the economy through various channels and still has not told us where it all went and how it all got there and what the terms of getting any of it back are, if we're even going to get it back. I'm talking about all that. All that money went into the economy. And instead of allowing a, a, a deflationary slam that, that hit quick, did what it was supposed to do, cleared out the, the sickness, it's like burning, burning down part of a forest. You clear that area so it can regrow. Instead of that, we kind of wetted all the trees down. So now there's a lot of trees still standing that are dead or won't grow right. And all the stuff that's down on the forest floor that should be coming up really fast is coming up really slow. The sick and wounded have been saved on the field and they're holding back the new aggressive growth. And that's in the form of inflation. That's what's going to cause this. All that money they poured in, all the inflation we've been worried about, all the inflation they've been trying to make happen is coming in 2011. It's finally going to come through the other side. Because as these companies that did the right thing Start to expand a little bit, start to spend, buy some more stuff, hire some more people. The unemployment number starts to come down. More and more dividend reports come out. Companies reporting earnings higher than expected. Confidence in the market. The sheep put the money back in the stock market. The old people are told by their financial advisors, now is the time to go back in. All of these things are going on consecutively. Once the See, this is the thing. The money's been there. Helicopter bed shoved it in, but it hasn't flow. It hasn't flowed through. The velocity of money has been very slow in the past two years. Now it's going to move. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And once some of it starts to move, it's like a dam breaking, and then it all starts to move. And then these trillions and trillions that were pumped in start to replicate themselves through our system. They get shoved around, and inflation starts to take off. Another thing that's making these companies money is they have inventory they've been sitting on that they bought with yesterday's dollars cheaply. They're selling it into the inflated economy. And as that process continues to go, if a company has a 90-day lag time and we're at inflation, real inflation for a year that's 10%, they'll tell us it's 2. Let's say it's 10. That means that I'm buying with an inflation period at, let's say, baseline and at 0, I'm selling at 2.5%. Well, 2.5% doesn't sound like a lot, but if I do a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars worth of business a quarter, and I add 2.5% to that, so I bought with less and sell at more, and I'm actually using inflation as I drop my product or service into the marketplace with my 90-day lag between when I pay for it and when I sell it, well, all of a sudden my profits look even better. This is a false recovery. And everything starts to steamroll, and we have to get that. We start to get what looks like that jump start they've been promising us. But this show is called the Seven Deadly Cracks. And the problem with everything I've just told you is they don't do anything, anything at all, to start to repair 
even a little bit of the seven deadly cracks. One, they sort of patchwork. The other six, they don't even touch. And the other six are what caused the seventh, by the way. So let's talk about the seven deadly cracks and why all of this is a PR campaign. All of this is nonsense. And the worst in this cycle is yet to come on the second dip. Number one, the collapse of the housing market is still in full swing. I think a lot of people are like, well, the foreclosures happen. And a lot of the the, the foreclosed houses, uh, people took the signs down even if they didn't sell. The banks don't even want the sign in the yard anymore because it's just an invitation for burglary. So they're on a list somewhere trying to, to be liquidated, and the banks have to pay somebody to come mow the lawn once in a while. So it looks like the house is sold, but it's just sitting there. And for all the houses that were foreclosed upon, we're expecting the largest single year of foreclosures, about 1.2 million, I believe it is, um, foreclosures in 2011. 1.2 million. More. More foreclosures. Let me put it in another way for you, though, so you can understand it. That means that between 2008 to 2011, we add all of those years together, we're going to come out with an average of about a million houses a year over three years. Three million houses foreclosed upon. Three million. Putting it in perspective, I did some research in the past to see how many houses are there in America, how many single-family dwellings are there in America. And it's about a hundred, somewhere between between 90 and 120 million. It's very hard to actually get that number. You know, trying to, to root out things like, um, you know, uh, row house, not really row housing because that would still be each individual unit, but things like uh, duplexes that are, that are co-managed and co-owned as a duplex or apartment buildings and things like that. Um, just straight up houses, 90 to 120 million. That means almost 3%, roughly. 3% of all houses foreclosed. 3%. Doesn't sound like a lot. It's, it's, it's massive. But here's the big thing. This is the big problem with the uh, the collapse of the housing market, and it's the part that no one's talking about, no one seems to fully understand. Three million people thrown out is also three million people that just can't go to the bank and go, I'd like another mortgage, please. If you've been thrown out in the past three years, you're not getting another mortgage right now, and you probably shouldn't. But but the fact is, it hurts us that you're not going to get one. You can't even, like, okay, you got thrown out of the house, you bought a half-million-dollar house. You actually have plenty of money, you just couldn't afford a half-million-dollar house. Let me give you a loan so you can go buy a $175,000 house. You might be a great credit risk for that $175,000 purchase, but I'm not giving you the money because your credit credit score is scrap, and you just walked a mortgage. I can't give you a loan. So the 3 million houses really is a net 6 million because it's 3 million houses onto the market, and it's 3 million buyers off of the market at the same time. It's a massive problem. And it's going to continue to suppress the value of real estate, which is the single biggest asset, quote-unquote, in most Americans' lives. So we've got that still going full tilt bore. It has not slowed down. Any belief that there's less people losing their homes today than there was two years ago when this started is an illusion and about the attention span of the American people. Well, that can't still be going on. I heard about that yesterday. That's got to be over now. That's the attitude. But it's still going. 
The next one, high, employ- high unemployment is not getting better. We have, you know, a tenth of a point percentage drop here and there. And there's all this, you know, right now they talk about, we got a little bit better unemployment numbers to look at. Two tenths of a point nationally or whatever bullshit they come up with. This is a real sign that the economy is beginning to pick up steam. Bullshit. What do stores do around the holidays? They hire massive amounts of temporary employees. And what do they do in January, right after returns are done? They lay off the majority of the people that they hired for temporary use. And they keep maybe the top 10% if they want a full-time job. And a lot of people that take those jobs, you know, it's just extra money around the holidays. They don't even want it. So in the end, maybe 7 to 8% of the people that are hired as temporary help get kept. So this is an artificial blip on the radar. Build up to the holidays, just like always. And it's not real. Just like the false bump to unemployment during the census taking. Boy, we're going to talk about that next month uh, when I come back in 2011. Because you're not going to believe some of the things that went on that I was dead on about the census. But we'll let that go. But right now, the point is companies just aren't hiring. And everything I've told you can eat away at this a little bit. But there's a lot of people out there right now that even with a moderate recovery are going to have a hard time getting a job. If you haven't had a job in two years... Companies very leery about hiring you right now. Why couldn't you find something in two years is what they feel. Right or wrong, right? Somebody's going to get mad at me and write me hate mail. Don't. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what hiring managers think. I'm sitting here. I'm looking across the desk at three candidates. One guy's had a job for the last two years. He's been in a, a, a kind of a junior position. He wants his first move up. I'm hiring a senior manager. I can hire him or I can hire two people that are slightly more qualified because you've been senior managers in the past, but neither one of you have had a job for two years. This young kid kept his job. Who do you think I'm going to hire? Right or wrong? Does it matter? That's how hiring managers think. So for a lot of people that have been out there, these 99ers they talk about, you know, two years of unemployment, those people are going to have to have a severe recovery to get jobs. Because there's hungry college graduates that will work for nothing, and there's young, aggressive people that made it through that want to move up. And all of those people are getting hired first. I'll go to my competitor, I'll steal his junior person, he'll replace his junior person with a college grad. The senior people, the people with the best skills that got caught in this avalanche, they're going last, unless they get very creative about what they're doing. So unemployment is not getting better without a major, sustained, long-term recovery. We're talking three to four years of sustained recovery before those people start to really get pulled off the market. The next one is the majority of our states, each individual state government, is damn near bankrupt. Yep, they don't call it bankruptcy, by the way. You know, here's the thing. I read some comments yesterday on some posts, but especially some yahoos over at places like... uh uh, the Huffington Post. They say, all oh, these states are always supposedly near bankrupt, but they never go bankrupt. Well, that's because they don't call it bankruptcy. They call it cuts. Cuts in the budget. They call it cuts in retirement programs. And then all the people that are state employees go pick it. And this happened at the city level, too, but we'll hold off on that because it's another crack. But when a state literally can't pay its bills, eventually, you know what happened in Ireland and Greece? Well, imagine when that happens to California in New York. Right now, the federal government, in all its benevolence, steals the American people's money, prints more fake money, takes the Chinese money, converts it to dollars, the pounds from the Britain converts that to dollars, does whatever it has to, makes up a big care package of 
federal funds, sends it to California and uses it to take greater control over California, except at California you're worse than us, so you're on board here, just take the money. But they do it with other states too. They try to give Texas money. And as much as I despise Rick Perry, at least he said, no, I don't want that money. That money comes with conditions. Keep it. We'll, we'll do all right down here ourselves. But folks, even Texas, we're going to have budget shortfalls in 2011. No one wants, everybody wants to talk about our $8 million surplus. Nobody wants to tell you the truth about our, um, you know, our, our three to four billion dollar shortfall that we'll have in 2011. But it's coming. And Perry's going to have to find a way to pull a rabbit out of his hat to make it disappear. Because he wants to run for president. But our states all around the union are near bankruptcy. They have obligations they can't pay. All those great state worker jobs that come with all that great retirement benefit and all that great insurance and, and you wonder how they can just keep giving people raises and the union's picking and we're just going to do better and better and better and you'll never lose your job. And well, okay, we laid off 17 people, but we had to, uh, from this department, hey, we're a small state like Rhode Island. We only have so much money, but hey, everybody that's here, it's still going to be blissful. And when you retire, you're going to get paid for the rest of your life to sit around and do nothing. Isn't that great? You'll have all all your health care, guess what? It can't mathematically happen. And they've been doing this crap for decades now, and finally the pipers come and do. And we're seeing the same thing in Ireland, in Portugal, in Greece. And you're going to see it keep going. It's going to go to Spain. It's, it's happening to England right now. It happened to Iceland. All these nations are just precursors to what our states are going to start doing. Now you think about this. Ireland has financial troubles and starts cutting, you know, retirement benefits and it ushers in austerity is what they call it. Our stock market tumbles 500 freaking points. Why? Ireland's not a big customer of ours. If the entire, if you're in Ireland, please don't take this the wrong way. Because I don't wish this for you. But the truth is, if the complete nation of Ireland crumbles to the ground tomorrow, Economically for the United States, it's barely a blip on the radar screen. They don't have the GDP of Florida, for God's sakes. So, why? Why? Because of investor confidence. Oh my God, it could happen here. So, if, if Ireland having some problems, or Greece having some problems, pushes our stock market down for a few days before, hey, that was dumb, let's go get our stock back. Before, you know, if that happens, what happens when the newscaster comes on and goes, the state of California today has announced that it is technically in a state of bankruptcy, unable to meet its obligations. And three or four days later, following on the heels of California, New York governor comes out today stating that the state of New York is also in financial trouble. Hawaii's governor joins the list today. That's what's going to happen. What does that do to our stock market? For all the people that think the Dow Jones number is the economy. It is not the economy. It is one indicator of the economy. And it's the one everybody pays attention to. Because it's the one they put at the top. If they put NASDAQ at the top on the numbers list. that it, it, I'll tell you what. It's because it's at the top of the list. And it's the biggest number because of the way the index is put together. If you flipped it around to the S&P or the NASDAQ being a bigger number tomorrow. By just changing the way it's calculated. That's the one everybody would look at. It's the biggest number to the top of the list. That must be the economic report card. Because Americans are ignorant to financial realities. Which is another big danger that we have. But we have states all over America near bankruptcy. By the way, every one of these cracks will be in today's show notes with a hyperlink to news stories demonstrating how factual it is and telling you more about it if you want to look at it. Now here's the other thing. Cities and municipalities 
all over America are in the same situation. And yesterday when I did this, I pointed to uh, an older article. But guess what was out today in the Guardian.co.uk? Two trillion dollar debt crisis threatens to bring down 100 U.S. cities. That piece of news came out about four hours after I published my article. A hundred cities. And I'll leave it to you to read the article, but basically, everything I've just said about the states is going on in countless city governments throughout the United States as well. And the city governments are turning and saying, we have to fix the problem by taxing our people. And we have to understand that the federal government already bailed out the states, and the states bailed out a lot of the cities. There was already a huge economic stimulus poured into the states from the feds. The American people didn't want it, and they don't want it again, and Washington's been told, don't you do it again. So it's probably not coming again. Because the people are also saying, well, what do we get for our money? And the answer is not much. We have cities and states on the verge of bankruptcy. So, add to the the, the series of newscasts coming out. At whatever point this happens, things like, the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia today announced that Atlanta is on the verge of bankruptcy. You know? New York City mayor announces that New York City can no longer meet its its obligations and will need to begin to cut retirement immediately. City of fill-in-the-blank will be laying off 10,000 workers. That would have to be New York or Chicago, probably. A hundred. Fifty. Doesn't matter. When they start to come together at the same time. So the cities and the states are both on the verge of bankruptcy. Next one. The United States is $13 trillion in the hole. Just on the public books. $13 trillion in the hole. Just on the official public books. This does not include Medicare, Social Security. This does not include the public's debt. My debt and your debt. This is just the government's debt on one of three sets of books. There's three sets of books your government keeps. The public record that we're able to see for general spending, the Medicare, Medicaid books, and then the private budgets that we're not allowed to see, that they hide. We have no idea how big that one is, how big the hole is there. It's probably pretty big. But the public debt alone is $13 trillion. And it's forecasted to hit over $20 trillion in the next 10 years. Now, do you think that the rest of the world is just going to keep saying, eh, here's some more money. Here's some more Chinese. Oh, you good American. Here's some more money. You know? The British is going to keep saying, hey, mate, no problem. Don't, no worries. Here's some more pounds. Do you think there's a point where the rest of the world just starts to look at our debt and goes, hey, hey, how the hell are you going to pay us? And, and that's not the way it works. It's not like loan sharkery. You know, if what happens first is, uh, you know... This, this 4%'s not enough. We need 5%. We need 6%. We need 8%. Interest rates start to climb on U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, you think that's good for you, but if inflation beats the bond price, it doesn't matter. You're still losing money by holding a bond. But the foreign governments start to collect more, more money by giving us trillions and billions of dollars of money that, remember, they create for themselves out of thin air. And eventually even that starts to dry up. 13 trillion growing to over 20 trillion in the next 10 years and nobody's putting the brakes on. Don't be misled by anything the TV tells you. Well, we're going to cut 8 billion dollars worth of earmarks. Cutting 8 billion out of 1 trillion 
is like cutting eight dollars out of eight million. Please understand that that's, that's the relationship that we're at mathematically here. A trillion is a thousand million dollars. That means our 13 trillion dollar public on the books debt is 13,000 million dollars. 13,000 million. And they're going to make it 20,000 million. And here's the thing. If we balanced the budget now, the debt will still grow on interest alone. Because remember, our money is nothing but debt. We're kind of reaching the end here with this game of just recycling money. The next one, kind of directly related to the debt. The deficit in 2010 was over $1.4 trillion. $1.4 trillion we spent in 2010 that we did not have, and we got nothing for it. That didn't build new bridges. It didn't fix our crumbling infrastructure. We didn't put up windmills in the desert. We didn't put in solar farms. For God's sakes, we didn't even do what Barack Obama said and change the freaking light bulbs in most instances. Most of the money that was spent, that was distributed in these stimulus programs, went into holes where the money was already gone. If you owe $5 million and I send you $5.5 million, you end up effectively with getting a half a million dollars. And then you waste it because obviously when you were $5 million in the hole, you didn't know how to manage money in the first place. So that extra half million just vanishes and a year later you're just as bad off and I get nothing back as your investor. That's what we did in America, folks. Trillions of dollars through various channels pumped in was nothing but filling holes. That's why inflation stayed in check. That's how we can put four or five trillion dollars into an economy that only has 13 trillion and still end up with about 13 trillion. Because the money vanished, it went away, it disappeared. That's what held inflation in check. That's where all you guys are going, where's the inflation? I mean, even when you look, okay, the can of corn went up a nickel, you're still going, this is not what I'm talking about. Where's the real inflation? It's been held in check by vanishing money. It's literally sliding down a hole into an abyss of nothingness. But the debt grows. The deficit grows. The amount you owe, your children owe, and your grandchildren owe, and the interest on it is growing, but we're not rebuilding America. You know, I didn't really like Franklin Roosevelt, but at least when he spent money, we got stuff. We got dams and roads and national parks and infrastructure. We haven't gotten jack diddly crap. We've spent more money than any nation in history has ever been worth in the past couple years. And we got nothing. We haven't gotten anywhere near energy independence. We got nothing. That's the important thing to understand. All the debt and all the deficit has brought back zero. Basically, your leaders, Ben Bernanke, government, corporations have said, all we can tell you is if we didn't do this, it would be worse. So we, we unloaded water from the boat while water leaked into the boat. Please understand that. And then the last thing, and this is the boring one, but people need to understand how critical this is. There is an accounting practice called FAS 157. And that law came into place right when this thing happened, and it made the banks value their securities based on what somebody would pay them. So I have a whole bunch of mortgages wrapped up here, and I'm going to put them on my books and say we're worth a billion dollars. 
but they're toxic assets. Nobody wants them, and the people aren't paying the freaking mortgages. The, the underlying property in this billion-dollar asset might be worth $100 million to $200 million if I can find someone to actually liquidate the properties to and convert the paper asset into tangible cash. But, technically, it's a billion-dollar asset. With my little computer program that if all the debts are paid and, you know, what have you, I could say it's worth a billion dollars, so I put on my balance sheet. FAS 157 comes out and says, no, 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 no. No, you don't get to do that. You need to put that security out on the market, whether you're going to sell it or not, take bids on it. And then whoever's, you know, whatever the highest bid is, whatever somebody's willing to pay you, you put that on your balance sheet of what it's really worth. And then this crash happened and the Congress stepped in and said, we're not going to do that. Go back to what you were doing before. Bank of America, Citibank, you know, Chase, all you guys out there, just put down whatever you think it's worth. And all of a sudden, the balance sheet that's in the negative for billions is in the positive for billions because somebody put a different computer entry in the bank. But they're still holding the toxic assets, which are the mortgages that are not going to be repaid and the derivatives against them, a quadrillion-dollar international derivative bubble is still out there, still waiting to completely implode. A weapon of mass destruction in the words of Warren Buffett. And almost half of the foreclosures that are going to happen are still in the future, tying it right back to the first, um, the first crack. So we got voodoo bookkeeping that make the banks that are bankrupt look solvent. Now, everything that I told you about what's making this economy recover is true and predictable. It's why I was able to tell the early listeners back before the collapse was even really going on. We're talking August. It will come. It will look really bad. It will get better. It will get much better. People will praise the, the freaking Wall Street gods and say that it's all going to be okay now. And then the second collapse will be worse than the first. So before the first collapse, I was able to see this coming and tell you why. And here's the reason. Everything that's driven the current recovery... It's exactly what drove past recoveries. If you went back and looked, and I'm talking before the Fed, the first central bank that started monkeying with the money, before Andrew Jackson, the very first one, and all the way forward, as long as they've been there, this cycle's been run. The inflation and deflation of the currency and the skimming off the top and skimming off the bottom. See, they make money at the top of the economy, and they when you lose, they win. And at the bottom of the economy, they buy things up cheap, and then they do it again and again and again. It's a planned cycle. So knowing the recovery would come was easy. Knowing why it wouldn't be sustainable and that the second crash would be worse was also easy. Seven deadly cracks. Everything I've told you today about these problems, pending bankruptcies of the states and the cities, foreclosure nightmare, the way unemployment works, Okay? The way people get rehired and don't get rehired after long durations of unemployment. All of them. FAS 157. Coming on, causing damage, being taken away, and the stuff being fixed overnight with voodoo. Money being poured into the economy, going in the holes, not actually buying or paying or fixing anything. All of it. Every bit of it. The, 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 the debt. $13 trillion of U.S. debt. We didn't owe $13 trillion of debt in 2008, in the summer, but we knew we would. We knew we would by this time. 
The projections were already there. Everything I've told you was public knowledge for anybody that would look in 2008. So recovery, understanding the cycle. And understanding that the seven deadly cracks had time yet to play out. And understanding exactly how the government and the Federal Reserve and Wall Street would get their little fascist empire together and try to push the bubble back up was made it easy to see the recovery. The cracks, unfortunately... The cracks aren't going away. So I'm going to give you my scenario about how this is going to play out. This is the best I can do. It is a guess. I probably won't get everything right. But in the end, it, all that matters is what the total net result is. What will first happen is one of the cracks will begin to break. And that crack is going to most likely be state and city governments combined. Those newscasts that I said, you know, California today announced that type of thing, um, that will be first. And this will shake investor confidence to the core because by then we'll be in the middle of what looks like a really sustained recovery. I mean, 12.5 for the Dow or higher. I predict 12.5 for the Dow by early 2011. How high and how long this lasts before these cracks start to break up, I don't know. I'm not going to lie to you. It could be... By the end of 2011, we could be in financial oblivion, or we could still be perceived utopia. The crash could come in 12, it could come in 13. I don't know. But I know the way these things have to play out and what they have to eventually do. And the first thing that's going to break is going to be the state and city governments, because they're the closest to breaking now. They can't play the games the banks can with the voodoo games. And as that starts to happen, and as the second recession begins, the thing that's going to be hitting people again is the value of their real estate and people that are still in houses they can't afford. When they finally take it on the chin and they want to sell, there's going to be 6 million effective net properties out there on the market because 3 million buyers are off the market and 3 million houses are on the market. And that's going to make their house almost impossible to sell for what they owe. So you'll see a deflationary hit on real estate bigger than the last one because there's more surplus inventory. So as people get into bad financial ways, they begin defaulting even more on real estate. This is the death of the suburbs that I've talked about. And when that happens, sooner or later, the day of reckoning has to come to the banks. Because they can't handle another 2 or 3 million or more houses dumped on top of the 6 million that already happened. And sooner or later, the banks start to fail. More than they did the last time. Investor confidence weighs even further. The stock market begins to really come down. At some point in that downward trend of the market, People that got hurt the last time say, hell no. And everybody starts calling their financial advisor, all cash now. But sir, shut up, sell. Shut up, sell. Shut, that, call, that conversation happens millions of times over less than a week. Just like it did before, only it's more. And it flies to the ground. And then the Fed starts trying to bail everything out again and sending money out there again. And people say, no, don't do it. And maybe they do it anyway, but it's too late. And inflation at this point has already gone through a massive cycle. We're already paying tremendously more for items and goods than we should be. Our money has already been massively devalued. And they think they can do it one more time and jumpstart the Frankenstein monster. If we just get a big enough lightning bolt into those bolts in his neck, he'll stand up. But he won't stand up. 
Because when this starts to happen, the Chinese, the Japanese, the British, they start cashing in those bonds and converting them into other things. The Fed starts buying them up like crazy to monetize the debt. They go to the Chinese and they buy a billion dollars. They wipe out our Chinese debt with a computer entry. Here's U.S. dollars. And the Chinese take those dollars. They dump them as fast as they get their little Chinese fingers on them. They convert them to gold and mining in Africa like they're doing right now. They get their hands out of the American kitty jar. Right now, Britain, China, Japan, all these nations, they're not fools. They know this is happening. They're using us. And we're letting them. Not you and me, and not their people, for God's sakes. Their governments know this cycle. I'm not smarter than the people running the British government, for God's sakes. If I can see this, they can too. All these nations around the world that look like they're running to the dollar for shelter are using the dollar as a leverage point to get themselves into realistic, valuable commodity before we implode. They can't afford... I told you when, when they said we were going down, no we won't, the money will flow in because the other nations in the world right now can't afford an imploding United States. It's not time yet. Not a conspiracy. They just look at it and go, oh crap, we can't lose this customer right now is the way to look at it. We'll give this customer anything they want, even though they're a pain in the ass. But when we pick up enough other customers, we can tell this pain in the ass customer, if you want to do business with us, it's going to be much more expensive now. And eventually, we'll just keep raising the price till they can't afford to do business with us. Instead of firing the customer, the customer goes away on its own, and we don't care what happens. And that's what's going on. And when that happens, you get a, you know, if you want to, my number for Dow... 4,000, 3,000, something like that. It doesn't even matter if it's eight. It doesn't even matter if it doesn't sound that bad compared to the last 6,600. When it goes down there, how long does it stay down there and how long does it go sideways? How long do we go into stagnation? How long are we going to be left with certain assets deflated and others inflated? The worst of both worlds. An apple is $2, but you can't sell your house. This is what's coming. And I am not the smartest man in the world. And I could be wrong. And I'm going to tell you right now something that you may not believe because you might think I just want to be right. I pray that I'm wrong. I hope that God with every fiber of my being that I've gotten this wrong. I hope that this nation comes together and we get it back together and the states fix their problems and the banks get rid of the toxic assets and we've learned something and we rebuild and we go forward and we're better for it and we can go back to good, solid, economic, sustainable growth. But I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it's possible. Not until we fix it. We can't fix it until we exercise the cancerous tumors out of our economy. And those cancerous tumors are highly linked to those seven cracks that I gave you. They're banks running our economy, creating money out of thin air. They're a Federal Reserve that prints money by creating debt. They're a Congress that doesn't give a shit about what you and I want. They're obligations that the nation has to break. Old people are not going to get all the all the social security they were promised. Not everybody's going to get free health care. It's not possible. 
especially not with the current system where money is expensive. And that's what people just don't get. In our system, money has a cost. A dollar doesn't cost a dollar. It costs two or three by the time it's done going through the system. And the further you are down, the more money it costs you to get that dollar. Because it's all tied to interest. And because we've lived in this system for a hundred years, even if we wean off it, even if we get sensible, even if Ron Paul got 80 allies in the House of Representatives, which isn't going to happen anytime soon, even if we went on a five-year plan to slowly dismantle and remove the Fed and go back to a sane currency, even if, even if we did everything, we've made such a mess, there has to be pain and suffering. If you get yourself lost in a desert, you're going to be very thirsty, very tired, and very full of cactus thorns, even if you survive and get back to safety. You have to endure the pain. Because you're the one that went out there. And we're collectively in this desert, and no one is coming to rescue us. So we have to band together and get through this, and that means there's going to be pain, and we did not feel the pain. I know if you've been unemployed for six months or two years or something like that right now, you're going, I felt the pain. No, the nation didn't. Go to the average shopping mall. And it was last year, and it was the year before. Can't find a parking place around Christmas. For every person that's felt the pain, nine have avoided it. Or more. We're all going to feel the pain for this to be fixed. We can come out a better, stronger, more educated country. We can come out more financially stable. But we're not going to be with military bases in 120 or 130, whatever it is, countries. We're not going to do that if we're outspending the rest of the world's militaries collectively. We're not going to do that as the policemen for the entire freaking planet. We're not going to do that by trying to fix everybody's freaking problems for them. We're going to have people fall. And when they fall and they skin their knee, we help them up and go, now freaking walk! Your knee skin, I don't give a shit, I helped you off the ground. We're not ready to do that yet. We have come to such a collective delusion as a people that we've allowed these seven terrible things to occur. Seven deadly cracks in our economy. And they have to break. And they have to take this nation that are acting like a collective group of drug addicts and push us to skid row, rock bottom. Here's the reality. Everybody likes to hear about the drug addict that went to skid row, that hit rock bottom, that one day looked in the mirror or the reflection in the mud puddle and said, this is as low as you can go. And then turned around, got up, and built something out of their life, and went around and told school children to stay off drugs. Everybody loves that story. And I love that story too. The other side, for every one that looks in the mud puddle, and gets up, three or four, maybe five, drop their face in the mud puddle, and drown, and die. I don't know how many people will be left on Skid Row when this is over but I don't want you to be one of them. And you don't have to be. 
You can do what everybody else that's using this country right now is doing. You can understand that this false recovery is coming. For God's sakes, do not be afraid to hold cash. Please don't send me one more email. I have $3,000 of excess cash. I need to know what to invest it in now. If all you have is $3,000 in excess cash, keep it. You're going to need it. Yes, inflation will make the $3,000 worth $2,000. You're going to need money even more in that scenario. Have some freaking cash. Buy some gold. Buy some silver. Buy some food. Be prepared for the darkest time in the United States' history. I think we're going there. If we're not, we're still going somewhere pretty bad. See, I put this out yesterday. And I immediately got a response on Facebook from the article, well, what do we do now? Hoard cash? Buy gold? Pack up the RV and run off and, and off-grid and hide? What the hell do we do? I'm optimistic. I'm extremely optimistic about my future. I think you should be too. This is not the end of the United States. This is a transformational period for the United States. And God help us, the lunatics out there, it could coincide with 2012 pretty good and they'll be preaching the end of all things and rolling around on the ground and twitching and saying that they're being communicated to by some Mayan or something like that. But the real message of 2012 was never one of the end of the earth. It was transformation. And every civilization and every nation and every human in their individual lifetimes goes through multiple periods of transformation. We know this transformation is coming. What you need to do is get your ass out of debt. And every single person that tells you, well, in an inflationary period, debt is good. They're wrong. They're wrong. I can't say it again. They're freaking wrong. Pay off your debt. Save your money. Build up your reserves. I said this in 2008, and it ended up being true. It's about to happen again. If you solidify your position now, understand that in the future, once again, the entire world is going to go on sale, and the prices are going to be cheaper than ever. Damn the inflation. Eventually, when people have very little they will sell it for almost nothing to get what they need. This is going to happen again. So if you can get yourself as close to debt-free as possible and get your home producing as much for you as possible and have as much of your five primary needs provided by yourself as possible and store surplus assets, cash, metal, whatever works for you, whatever you think is right for you, but for God's sakes be diverse. No one and two egg baskets, folks. I want 20 egg baskets out there. I want things cut up in little pockets all over the place. I want redundancy upon redundancy in your life. As long as you have those things to draw upon, this transformational period is going to be one of the greatest opportunities for you that you will ever see in your lifetime. I'm not saying it's not going to hurt. I'm not saying the big, giant inflation monster is not going to show up. Mr. Smith? Yes, I'm Mr. Smith. And punch you in the face. And knock you flat on the ground and bloody your nose. I'm not even saying when you get up, your nose is not going to be twisted like Ben Roethlisberger's on the Steelers was a few weeks ago. And that the doctor's not going to have to put his thumbs on both sides of it and straighten it out. It's not going to hurt like hell. I'm not saying that you're going to get off scot-free. I'm not saying I'm going to get off scot-free. I'm not saying any of us are. It's going to suck. But we know we're going out to the desert. 
And if you knew you were going out to the desert, you'd bring a map and a compass, bring water and food. You'd bring some way to create shelter and some way to create fire. And then you and the people that were prepared would band together and you'd walk your ass back home. Right? And then a lot of people you'd want to help, you'd go, I can't help you, I'm sorry, you were too stupid, I told you we were going in the desert. You help who you can, and you get back safely. You're going to get back with lots of cactus thorns, you're going to be dry and parched, but you'll be stronger for it, like everybody that ever ventured into the desert and survived the experience. Be prepared. Don't panic. Don't start freaking out. For God's sakes, Christmas is coming. Enjoy it in spite of everything I've told you today. That's why I really had a hard time doing this show today. There's plenty of good ahead. There's plenty of bad. Just keep doing the things that I tell you to do every day. And I won't promise you a pain-free existence. But I'll promise you that you'll do better than most of the people around you. And the good thing is, if you're a caring person, you'll be in the position to do the most good and help the most people. You will not be able to help everybody. We're going to go through a period where the prepared are going to be like triage people in an emergency room. This guy's going to die. Push the gurney over there. Take him down to the morgue. He's got three of his ribs piercing his, his lung. There's 20 people over here I can save. He's got to go. I'm sorry. Sounds heartless and cold, but the 20 lives I can save outweigh the one life that I probably couldn't save anyway. That's what we're going to be in. The ratio may be completely opposite for you because you're an individual. But if each of us can pull one along the way with us and help one person that wasn't prepared make it, we'll come out with people that are educated and have learned. And this nation can rise back up. And maybe, maybe we can come out the other side of us, other side of this, being what the founders envisioned. A nation of we the people. A nation that owns our own resources and owns our own money. There's no reason for an IRS, folks. None. There's no reason for an income tax that exists to fund the Federal Reserve and nothing more. Maybe when the pyramid falls apart, maybe the survivors, the ones that are in any kind of condition to do anything to put it back together. And I'm not talking about the end of the world. I'm not talking about the road warrior here. Look at some pictures of 1935. I'm talking about that. Maybe the people that come out the other side of that will be like our greatest generation that went off and fought World War II with a different mission. Instead of defeating America's enemies, throwing America's enemies out and rebuilding this nation. I believe that we can do it. And my message for you is be prepared. Be prepared for the change. Be prepared to adapt. And make sure that you're doing everything you can to protect everything that you've worked so hard to earn. You can do it. You can get through it. Nothing I've told you today is a reason to be afraid. Just to be cautious, prepared, and emboldened to know that when everybody's running around you and saying, It's all getting better. It's all getting better. That's when the real crash is beginning. And remember, when that moron comes on your TV screen, when that whoever he is... Whatever credentials and letters they put after his name. And he sits down and he says, We are out of the woods. The recovery is officially beginning and we have nowhere to go from here but up. All of the problems, all of the problems that made this the way it is, 
We've pushed them out of the system. We've cleansed the system. And real recovery is on the way. Remember when he tells you that? He's probably the same idiot that told you not to worry before the first collapse occurred. So don't listen to him then. You shouldn't have listened to him the first time. With that, I'll wrap up today. Again, I want, I, again, I didn't want to do this show. I'm sorry if I put anybody in the wrong mood. Leave today emboldened knowing that you're prepared for your trip to the desert. Put your five survival needs together. You might get a thorn or two. You might fall down and skin your knee. We'll all help each other up and we'll all walk out together. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.